Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 3rd, 2012, one day away from our nation's birthday, and I have to say that my show yesterday was kind of a downer, and today ain't going to be much better, except that I will finish with the things that you can do and some positive notes about it. But today we're going to talk about what I call the economic collapse that's in progress. Um, I, I keep getting emails from people about, you know, Carl over at the ticker, uh, blog, whatever, the tickerguy.com or, or ticker forum or whatever it is saying, it's over, it's gonna, it's now, it's now. And I've said, you know, the guy bores me because he keeps saying that it's gonna happen now, that it's over now, and they keep pulling the rabbit out of the hat, and this is why I don't like timelines. But when I thought about it, I, I realized what was really bothering me about it. What's bothering me about it is this whole now thing, not just from Carl, because Carl's really a switched-on guy. He's very smart. I don't want you to take that the wrong way. It's just every time I get a panicked listener with an email saying he put out a post that says it's over, it's going to happen now, it, it, it kind of bugs me that people are scared into this immediate reaction. What really bugs me is that we are not headed for a collapse. We are in a collapse. By the time I'm done today, you will understand exactly what I mean, and you'll understand a sense of urgency with being as prepared as possible for when a day of reckoning shows up. It's, it's not about when the collapse happens. It's about when everybody figures it out at the same time that it's already happened. This is how all depressions and recessions actually work. I'll explain that better in a bit. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show and helping to make sure it's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Today, uh, our sponsor of the day number one is silverandgoldshop.com. Well, I'll tell you what, if you don't have any silver and gold in your portfolio now, I, I just think you're missing the whole concept of, of what's going on out there. I think silver is at an excellent buy price right now. Not long ago, I said kind of hang fire on that, that I think there was some downside before upside. And uh, lo and behold, we see you know silver come from the mid-30s down into the high 20s. I think you're at a very strong floor, so I think silver's a good buy right now. Uh, please remember when you're buying from any silver dealer, not just uh, silverandgoldshop.com, the, uh, the spot price on silver is for the raw metal itself in raw form in large quantities, not for coins. So there's a premium over spot. But I'll tell you what, if, if half of the stuff I tell you is true today, and all of it's true, unfortunately. No one's going to give a damn if they paid one or two or three dollars over spot price on silver five years from now. No one's going to be worried about what the spot premium was. And what you'll notice with metals is as the metal goes up, spot premium goes up. I guess I'm getting into more content and a uh, little promotion for our sponsor today, though. But that's the truth. Look at the spot price of an ounce of gold over the spot price of gold. And then look at the spot price of silver over the spot price of an ounce of silver. And you'll see what I mean there. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Look, um, the thing about gold and silver is they're great hedges against inflation. They're a great insurance policy, but you can't eat them. Now, in certain economies, you may be able to buy food with them, but if there's no food to buy and you have silver, it doesn't do you a lot of good if you go hungry. So you want to make sure you stock up on long-term storables. You can do that at Safe Castle. If some of this stuff goes wrong that we're going to talk about today, you're going to want to be able to defend yourself. 
Check out Safe Castle. They got some good tactical stuff too. If you can think of it for your prepping, Safe Castle has it. They're also a huge supporter of the Member Support Brigade. Uh, they give you their $49 lifetime membership absolutely for free if you are a member of my Support Brigade. If you want to join the Member Support Brigade, the cost is $50 a year. You can sign up online or you can pay by, uh, by check, cash or silver in the mail. Remember, if you pay by silver, I believe what I say about the value of silver. Silver right now is trading for under 30 bucks an ounce. I will take an ounce of silver or a dollar fifty in constitutional silver, which is pre sixty four coin, for one year of MSB. And you can buy as many years as you want. You want to buy ten years? Send me ten ounces, and I'll hook you up for ten years. If you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or other first responder, like say a paramedic, active duty, or prior service, send me an email. Tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did, and I'll send you a discount code in advance so you get a discount. And even if you pay by silver, I kind of give you a discount anyway. I just give you more time. I give uh, a certain percentage off to first responders, and I give just that much more time when those guys pay by silver. I want you to know that. Uh, with that, I got that wrapped up. I want to get into the, the main topic today, and I want to start out with kind of something to put this in perspective for you. And I would imagine that you've probably never heard it explained this way before. I'm going to use a black hole, an actual black hole in outer space that eats planets and stars to explain how an economic collapse happens. If you're into astronomy, you might have heard the, how this black hole works before, but then I don't think you've probably ever heard how it applies to an economic collapse, a depression, a recession. We think... In movie terms with things like a black hole, and we see like a planet gets too close to a black hole or a star and it just sucks it in there and it's gone. And it's, it's the sucking part where it goes down and collapses onto the immense weight of this collapsed star. That's what a black hole is. It's a star that when it burns out, it's such a large star that when it collapses on itself, the core left behind is so dense that affects gravity so strongly that when something gets close to it, it comes under its influence, it begins an eventual fall inward. And when it gets into a place called the event horizon, we can't even see it anymore because even light cannot escape. So when we look at a black hole through a telescope, what we actually see is the influence on the outside. But when it gets into the event horizon where it collapses, then what we see is darkness. That's why we call it black. Because the light that's there cannot escape. That's how strong it is. So... With Hollywood, we like things to go quick and fast, and we have science fiction and stuff like that. So we see this black hole as something that, like, and you're gone. That's not how it works. The process of a, a celestial body falling into a black hole could take thousands or maybe millions of years. That huge gravity pull can actually keep an object in orbit if it's far enough away. But if it comes in just far enough, it begins a cascading fall toward the black hole. And if you were living on a planet doing this for you know many generations, you really wouldn't notice much at all because not just your planet, your whole solar system would be drifting towards this black hole. And as you got closer and closer and closer, it would actually begin to stretch matter out, so that if you were a, if you sped it up so you can watched it in real time, if it was possible, which it's not, a human body would literally get longer and stretch out. And it would become as thin as a wire eventually as it cascaded over. And this process would take a very, very, very long time. And by the time any object was close enough to hit that event horizon and go into the darkness, it's already destroyed. It's already destroyed. It's destroyed long before it gets there. But it also, the process of destruction could begin many, many, many years before this destruction is realized. 
This is how an economy collapses. Economies don't generally just, they're great one day, and then they go over the edge. They look that way because everybody's walking around with their MasterCard out, their thumb up their ass, and waiting for the farting angel from yesterday to come and pay their credit card bill off for them, right? Um, and it's not going to happen. But everybody just denies it and denies it and denies it, and then one day you hit the critical point where everything starts to stretch. Everybody in unison panics. Everybody pulls back the spending. Everybody freaks out. And then they go, wow, it happened overnight. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over a very long period of time. The 2008-2009 crisis that appeared to happen overnight, that some people say, well, we knew by kind of the spring of 2008, but people were in denial. It did not. In 2006, it was pretty obvious if you wanted to see it. In 2007, in November of 2007, I remember sitting down with my partner, Neil, and bringing in all of the department heads, all of the people in all, we had multiple companies there, kind of like a, uh, uh, what, what, what was the word for it? A conglomerate, right? So we had a holding company and several corporations within them, and we, you know, we managed these corporations from this, this, this uh, conglomerate corporation, this holding corporation. And we brought everybody in and we sat them down around the table. So we brought in all the financial people and all the department heads and said, we need to start preparing this company. This is 2007, October, October. We need to start preparing this company for a massive decline in the economy. We need to figure out which sectors that we serve that are still going to do okay. We need to figure out the ones that are the shortest on labor and we need to focus on them now. The only thing that we need to be doing now that's going to decline is easy stuff that are layups that's going to put cash in the bank so we can get through this period of time. And everybody was in denial. And I remember Neil saying, what you guys don't understand is by this time next year, this company will be deep in a recession. Right? And then arguing started. I said, look, the guy's right. And I, we explained everything. And nobody wanted to believe it because what it meant was some of the people that work for you are going to get laid off. And you need to figure out now how you're going to judge their metrics over the next six to eight months or however long we got so we know exactly who and why we're going to have to cut. We're going to have to look at certain departments and go, we can't lose anybody, but we're going to have to cut wages. How are we going to explain this to people so they don't bail? Because we're probably going to have to do some of these things a month or two in advance of when time's going to run out. We're not sure yet. We're watching it. Nobody wanted to believe it. All of the companies are still in business today. None of them were very big companies. All of them are still in business today. We did that as business people, and the people that were having to deal with our decisions at the time hated us for it. You're making life hard. Why are you doing this? Because we see it. We were that sure that we were willing to put directives in our company into place a year before. Because we knew it. We didn't think it. We knew it. And our thought process was if some, if the, if, if somebody does fart an angel and it does ride a unicorn and it does fix everything for us, we have leaned the company out. We can always go back. It's easy to ramp back up. It's hard to pull down and respond quickly. It's, it's almost impossible. We've got to be prepared in advance for this. And we did it, and all of the companies made it through what, you know, what, what arguably is the toughest time that anybody still alive today can really remember. There's maybe one or two people that are still around that were part of the Depression. Most of them are so young, they really don't remember it the way that I'm talking about, though. 
The 2008-2009 crisis was part of the economy being pulled into the black hole. That is the debt crisis, that is the monetary crisis, that is the unsustainability, uh, unsustainability of our modern system. It is not a crisis that happened. It's a crisis that's continued to happen. There are cycles. If you were on that planetary body being pulled in by the black hole before it was enough to destroy all life, there'd be times where things seem to be getting really messed up and out of whack, and then there might be other times where they seem okay. And it might vacillate back and forth many, many times before you go over the precipice. And there again, the precipice isn't down into the hole. It's the point at which the influence is so strong, it starts tearing things apart to the point where life can no longer exist and the planet can no longer be stable. This is what we're looking at in the economy. And I can show you some things going on right now that will show you that we're in the process. And I can show you some things that have been going on for a long time that will show you that the length of the crisis is far longer than anybody's looking at right now. This crisis really began its modern turn in 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve. And when it really started to run away was the 1970s and the closing of the gold window. It's not because gold is a magic answer and gold will fix everything. If it was that simple, we could just go back. It's because gold was one of the few things holding the credit expansion into check. And as soon as it went away, there was no check on it anymore and it started to run. So you've got to look at this from 1975 up until right now to really see it in totality. We're not going to go that far back. It would be an interesting thing to do, and maybe some someday what I'll do is set up a, a group of interviews with experts on each segment of the time period and bring them in and let them give you what happened and let me connect the dots. I think that would be very, very interesting to set up, and, and we may in fact do that someday. But that's what I want you to start thinking is a much longer event horizon and realize that if we started really craning over the, the, the edge in 71, right? And I know, yes, we can go back to, to, to 1913. In fact, we can go back further than that because this whole banker manipulation goes back to the, the dawn of civilization. But this modern turn that's created the self, self-destructive nature of the current paradigm really, really heated up in 71, big time in 75. One of the things that gets missed about the gold, and I, I always try to point this out to people because most people don't get it, and it's very important you understand it. In 1971, Nixon closed the gold window, and that's where everybody sees the dollar decoupling from gold. But if you look at the price of gold, it wasn't until the mid-70s, late-70s, that gold went on a meteoric rise, went way, way up, I mean, just ridiculous levels in today's Numbers, it's not as high as it was back then, even though like dollars, it was a lot less inflation adjusted. And then it, it came back down and then it leveled out into what looked like a relatively stable pattern with slow, with slow cycles up and down for a very long time before it took off again in recent time. Why did it take from 71 until the late 70s, early 80s for this to happen? Because from 1971 through 1975, there was still a check on the dollar against gold because the American citizen could not buy or own gold, so gold was not being traded in dollars. So the real value of gold could only be seen through the prism of an exchange rate with a foreign currency, and the dollar had been anchored by Bretton Woods as the global standard. So since the dollar was what everything else was pegged to, you couldn't see... What happened to gold until American citizens could take dollars and buy gold with it? And the minute that happened, if you look at a gold chart, 
You watch gold blow up from there. So it was, it was, that's when everything really kind of unwound. And we started to see what had actually happened to the dollar between 1913 and 1975. It made the lie apparent. And it precipitated greater crisis in the recession of the 70s. So that's how far back we got to look minimum into the 70s to see what's going on today. And then the next thing we need to look at, what's going on right now, this second, over in Germany. It's something called a, a superheated economy that they're heading into. I just saw a report on RT, Russia, Russia Today, that unfortunately they don't have up on the website yet or I would have played it for you. And this... Um, This report is basically the German citizens now, and I found one article on Reuters about it that I'll put for you in the show notes so you can verify that this is true. German citizens now are taking their euros and are getting higher wages, but they're also getting at the expense of what? Inflation. So that means the, the, the euro is buying less, especially in Germany, because the Germans are on their backs, not just bailing people out, but importing other European goods at higher cost to help their fellow Euro Europeans. That's what's going on. So the German is going to work and earning his money and realizing his money will literally buy less next month than it buys right now. So they're buying more. They're spending more. And that's what you call a, a heated economy. And if it goes too far, it turns into a superheated economy. And this is what I talked about, how when you are headed for the black hole, you're headed over the edge, there's times where it looks like things are getting really good. So retail establishments are booming in Germany. It's good days, happy times, selling, 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 beating your forecasts. Uh, on RT, what they said was a lot of people are going and getting high-end dental work done. They figure you might as well do it because the cost of that keeps going up. So you now have, the, have Germany turning a very, very dangerous corner. While the rest of Europe is freaked out and looking at austerity and, and going, I, you know, we got it, we need another bailout, give us some more money. The Germans have fired up their internal presses, inflated their supply, pushed money into their economy, put it into the hands of their people, and they've succeeded in doing what we failed to do in the United States, kicking off inflation. They got it going, and they think it's a good thing, but the reality is it's not. This is how it, again, history shows us what's to come. And history always shows that an economy that goes over the edge almost inevitably will go through one of these heated cycles first where it looks really good and stocks go up and everything looks better. And money is flowing, money's flowing, money's flowing, prices are going up. Corporations are buying raw materials in, in July, going through the manufacturing process and delivering the product in September, The raw materials have increased so much that it justifies the higher sale price, even though they bought the materials two months ago, three months ago, and that increases their profit margin. And they keep cycling this until you run into the brick wall, where until the inflation runs to the point where people's earnings can't keep up with it anymore. And when that happens, and there begins to come a point where you can't pay the basic bills, instead of being willing to pay more money for anything before the money loses value, you have no choice but to hold on to the money to pay the basic bills, and then the whole economy collapses in on itself. Guess what that looks like? Ding, ding, ding. 2008, 2009 in the United States. It was just specific to the housing sector here. But it's exactly what happened. The real estate market superheated. People were saying it's so cheap to buy right now. And prices are going up so fast. And they give me money for so low interest. And it's so easy to get. I've got to buy now. 
and it blew up the real estate sector, and everything in a country is connected to housing, whether the government wants to admit it or not. And when that collapsed, it affected every single sector of business in the United States adversely. And, and that's where Germany's headed right now, in a worse way. <laughs> in a worse way. Um, now, the next question I have for you is, Ben Bernanke, on the floor of the House was questioned by Ron Paul. And Ron Paul said to Mr. Bernanke, is gold money? And if you remember that from, I guess, a few months ago, um, Bernanke said, no, gold is not money. Gold is not money. And, and I am one of these people that doesn't believe only gold is money. I, I'm not that kind of purist, but gold is money. If I can take something at a fairly fixed value from you in exchange for goods or services, even if I don't particularly want it, but I know for a fact that I can go buy just about any other good or service with that thing, then that's money. That's a unit of exchange. That's a very definition of money. So we know gold is money. So I have a question for you. If Ben Bernanke, king of the central bankers, right? He is the king of all kings of central bankers, the chairman of the Fed. If gold is not money, why are the world's central banks, right? The, our Fed and all of the big banks like the Fed, the representation of the Fed and other nations, why are they collectively buying about 10% of the entire world's gold supply right now? And what does that mean for you? Let me go ahead and play you a little uh, video clip. We'll just get the audio, obviously, on that very fact, and then I'll come back and tell you what I think it means. A significant change uh, with U.S. central banks buying gold, and here to explain that is Simon Constable. Simon, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. All this right. So the table's turned, I see. The tables have turned, and now uh, I, uh, you are the questionee, and I'm the questioner. It's, it's true. Uh, so you've written this piece for Barron's. You talk about central banks snapping up gold. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. You write in the piece that uh, this is, this is a, this, but the central banks are buying gold in quantities not seen since 1965, 47 years ago. What's the change? What, what was happening then? What's happening now? So what was happening then, um, from the end of the Second World War through to 1971, was something called the gold standard. Um, it was the Bretton Woods standard, and central banks needed to hold gold and buy gold because that's the way the system worked. And then in the late 60s, it started to break down. As the that system's off the table now. That system's off the table. It completely broke down right. in 1971. It, it died. Right. It limped on a little bit, but it right. died. Um, and then from 1971 through 2007, central banks didn't need the gold, so they sold it. And they sold it in spades. They just like, dumped it. And then 2008 comes along, and it's the financial crisis. Um, and the Fed starts its money printing program. And central banks around the world are thinking, mm, I don't know about this. Uh. And they started buying it up again. And now we can look back over that that few years and say, okay, they are now back and firmly back, and the World Gold Council is saying they're firmly back as a, an important and big part of the market going forward. And we're talking about 10% of the world's gold market every year will be bought by central banks. Now, we showed the price of gold uh, in a graphic while you were talking. It's up, and, and there it is. It's up today. Are they having a lot of effect on the, on the price? Uh, secondly, and, you know, what... Why are they buying this gold? Are we returning to a gold standard even though we're not talking they, about that? They are buying this gold to diversify away from U.S. dollars, notably, right. and, and euros, notably, and other paper money, right? Because that's, that, the worry is that central banks and governments are going to print their way out of their debt problems. And gold 
over very long periods of time tends to keep its value, despite what other people say, it really does. All right, we want to show a graphic of, of what some things cost in 1965 versus what they cost now to talk about how long it's been since we've seen this kind of intervention in the gold markets by central banks buying this. Can you I guess? 31 cents, wow. Yeah, my fair lady, never seen it. Uh, Dow close, uh, 969. Uh, Simon, it, if, if we're seeing this uh, uh, massive buying, is this going to be, uh, as an individual investor, can I play this in some way? Can I actually go out there the, and... The, 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 there's another big change we've seen in the market. That's yeah. one big change and that's monumental. The other right. thing is speculators have fled this market. Um, we've seen uh, um, the number of speculators in the market drop by about a quarter, about 24% right. since last September. Uh, right. And that's less liquidity. It's going to mean the market's very choppy. Um, right. we're gonna see, and that means the market will move faster and in bigger moves than, than normal. As a small investor, you don't want to play with day-to-day -day moves because of that. You're just not going to be fast enough. You're just right. not going to be able to beat the robots. The way to play this is, is to, to buy and hold for a long period of time. If central banks are buying 10% a year, which is what the prediction yeah. is, then that is going to keep prices elevated. And over a long period of time, I would suggest that it's going to head upwards. But in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of this. A lot of gyrations, as we say. Okay, uh, Simon. Last question: Is is this a good idea by the central banks to go out there and start buying gold reserves? Are they going to need it? I think it's a. I think it's a great idea. I think the amount of money being printed. I think. I think when you start printing money, it's if you, when you turn the gas stove on and the gas comes out and you got the click, 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 and it takes a while for the 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 um, the spark to ignite the gas. The longer you got the gas on, the bigger the the, the, the right. flames. Right. Well, we've had the gas on for quite a while now yes. uh, with the printing money, yes. and still we don't have the spark of inflation. When it goes off, it's going to be boom. I you like the image though. I do. <laughs> you illustrated better than anyone else. Simon, thank you very much. Thanks, David. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? The longer it takes, the bigger the explosion. Sounds like what I was talking about, about this long collapse. We also had the number 1971 show up a bit. There's another number that showed up in there that I don't know if you caught it. I'll remind you of it. You probably did because it's something we think about every day, gas prices. Um, if you listen to that, what he said was a uh, a gallon of gas was 31 cents a gallon. And I know you might be thinking to yourself, man, those must have been the good old days. 31 cents a gallon for gas, that's something I could get used to. Well, that was the year 1965, and except for a very few of recently minted quarters, if you had a quarter in your pocket in 1965, you, you couldn't buy a gallon of gas. You needed a nickel and a penny to add to it to buy that 31 cent gallon of gas. But if you had just taken those quarters that when you're in your pocket in, in 65 and back, those silver quarters, and you had them today and you wanted to go out and buy a gallon of gas, so then guess what? One silver quarter today is worth about five bucks. I think you can pretty much buy a gallon of gas anywhere in the United States there is right now for about five bucks or less. And I think it's significantly less in most places. California might be the odd exception. I don't know what your gas prices are now, but you people are crazy that you let your government do what they do to you. Um, but for all intents and purposes, that quarter's worth more today than it was in 1965. More. You really have to think about that as, as, it, as it plays into this whole thing. The bigger picture here, though, is this whole thing where they're going to buy 10% of the world's gold a year. So this is an ongoing plan. We're going to buy 10% this year, then 10% next year. That'll actually be less. 
You understand why it's less? Because if there was just 100 ounces of something and I bought 10% of it this year, I'd buy 10 ounces. Well, next year, there'd only be you know, uh, 90 left. So if I bought another 10%, I'd buy 9. And with all of these banks doing this, there's no way that gold production will keep up with this. And this is going to put a shortage on gold. It's going to drive gold prices up. It has to. There will be these fluctuations. Just like the guy said, you can't beat the robot. Trading gold, especially physical gold, in small quantities and trying to make money off it is, is not the way to use gold. It's not the way to use silver right now. If there's a huge spike and you know it's temporary, like when it ran up to almost 50 bucks, if you wanted to go dump some of it, hold the money, waiting, and buy a bunch back, that would have been fine, as long as you know. And that was a pretty, pretty obvious spike. Um, but you got to be careful because one of those spikes one day might not be a spike. It may be on the way to a spike. And uh, might be on, on the way to a long-term ceiling. So you, you really have to be careful with that. It's about hedging. But if you, you, you do have to think about one thing. I want to tell you the one place that Bernanke was being completely truthful, because he is a banker. And if you ask a banker, what is money? They will tell you that money is a thing that is meant to be lent so that it can be expanded so that you can make money. To a banker, that's what money is. If you give a banker money, then he can lend out nine times more of it than he has. He doesn't lend out, this is the big thing, he doesn't lend out 90% of what he has. right? That would mean that if you gave a banker a million dollars and he loaned out the maximum amount of money, he would loan out $900,000, which is how it works, but he would only still have $100,000 right, in reserve. But that's not the way that it works at all. If you give a banker $1 million, he can loan out $9 million on the $1 million and keep all the million dollars in the bank. And that's how they do it. That's how fractional reserve banking works. And that's how a debt-backed monetary fractional reserve system works. So to a banker, it's not money unless I can loan it out to create more money with it. When you go buy a house for $200,000, the bank doesn't give you $200,000 that they have. They use the money they have as leverage to create a brand new $200,000 out of thin air, which you then owe them back plus interest. This is how this system works, and it's why it's not sustainable. So when a bank buys a large quantity of gold and puts it in reserve, they can't lend out against it. Now, they technically can because they can put it as an, as an asset that's of a par value and exchangeable like mortgage receipts, which they can also leverage against. But they can't do it as cleanly and easily and simply as when they just go to the Fed and say, yeah, give us money at a quarter point and we'll loan it out at four. Right? It's not that clean and easy for them. It's a little bit more complicated because it's an asset versus a cash flow. So they're going to sacrifice lending capacity, and actually they probably won't. It's just who are they going to trust with the money because they've got to be very, very careful right now. What these banks are doing is they're not stupid. These people that run these banks, we look at them like they're insane, and they're, they're psychopathic, but they're not stupid. They're very, very smart about what they're doing. They know precisely what they're doing. And they know what they're doing leads to a dark place. So what they're thinking now is if we hog up a whole bunch of gold, when the paper assets collapse 
and the gold is appreciated even greater in value, we can use the gold to cover the losses. And whatever the new system is we create, we'll be able to use the wealth held in the gold to reset. And we'll, and here's what they're going to do. Don't think they're doing this to help you. Don't think what they're going to do is they're going to go into a, a, a salvage mode and use the gold to prevent collapse. They'll let the collapse happen. And they'll pick up the collapsed pieces. That's the play. That's the plan. These people know this is coming because they created it. And let me tell you something. You can go get all the, street, the signs you want. You can march in an Occupy movement. You can march in a Tea Party movement. You can yell and scream. You can write your representatives. And the people in your government have not one bit of control over what that financial elite layer is doing with this money. And there is absolutely nothing that they're going to do to fix it because they're bought and paid for by the people doing it. Every one of these mega banks, mega corporations out there funds both sides of every major political campaign so that they have ownership of whoever wins. And they change the marketing message around them. This is the reality we're in. And the numbers are so big that it wouldn't matter if we put a, if you put 500 and, 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 and what is it, 35 or 45 odd honest Congressman who would hold the line for the people right now, if you put them in there, if you put a hundred honest senators that would have political differences but hold the line for the people, and a President Ron Paul, even if you put all of that into the system now, the system is in a state of decay, a state of erosion where the collapse still has to come. Trust me, I'd love to do what I just said. If we did it, we could get through it a lot better, and we could leave those guys holding the bag on a lot of what they've created, but it's still going to suck, it's still going to hurt, and there's no way out. The numbers are too big. In fact, I want you to understand how bad this really is. In, in 2012, in 2012, our nation will add more debt just in 2012, then the total debt accrued from the day George Washington swore in as our first president till the end of the Reagan administration. Let me say that again. Just in 2012, our nation will put more debt on the books in one year than the nation put on the books from the signing in and, and swearing in of our first president through the completion of the Reagan administration in 1988. In fact, it would even go a little bit into Bush's administration. That's one year of that added on. One year. Over the next 10 years, one decade, for those of you in your 20s, you think a decade is a long time. For those of us who have had a Reagan presidency last eight years, a Bush presidency of four, a Clinton presidency of eight, Uh, a Bush the second presidency of eight, we start to realize that a decade's not that big a deal. We start to realize that that comes up and kicks you in the ass far quicker than you think it does. Over the next decade, the interest on U.S. debt will be over $5 trillion. Not in 10 years, the interest will be, in 10 years from now, a, a $5 trillion bill. The total cost over 10 years spread out, interest on the debt, will be $5 trillion dollars over 10 years, that's an aggregate average, and it's much higher in the 8th, 9th, and 10th year, but that's an aggregate average over the next decade of a half a trillion dollars a year just in debt. Just in debt. That's almost as much as the entire cost of Social Security. 
That's almost as much as the Department of Defense. It's significantly more than five or six of the largest departments of government that are smaller than those monstrosities. Right? That's more than the cost of things like Homeland Security, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Education all put together. That's how big that bill is. Where in the hell do you think we're going to get the money to pay this? And don't say print it because you know what it means when you print it. Superheated economy followed by a contraction and a meltdown. This is, this is exactly the type of thing that people have been screaming about for years and it's getting to be so in your face that there's no way around it. I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating again today. There are a hundred cities in the United States that right now are facing a combined two trillion dollars in debt that it doesn't look like there's any way they'll ever be able to pay. That's just a hundred cities. That's not the states. It's not the counties. It's a hundred cities. The article that I will give you in the show notes today to go look that fact up is over two years old. Some people would look at that and say, well, that's old news. My question, did these cities pay this debt off yet? The answer, no. Remember, this is the problem with the way everybody looks for economic collapse. They're looking for it to happen for somebody to say that by June of next year, boom, it'll hit, and there it is. And then like it's, it hits, and then there's a cycle, and it goes back up. This is a long collapse. This is a long spiraling death spiral emergency. This is a complete dissolution of the wealth of the Western Hemisphere, right? Or the, the Western world. Europe, North America. I mean, the people that are going to come out on top at the end of this are going to be Asia, possibly, possibly some of South America, but that's a very big gamble for them right now. But Asia, India, that, that is where all of the people that are doing this on purpose, that know exactly what they're doing, that's their next move. They're playing three-level space chess with a population that's been so dumbed down, we're not even good at checkers anymore. They're 19, 20 moves ahead in this. They're positioning things so that their children and their grandchildren will benefit from the damage they've caused today. And no one is coming to fix it because it can't be fixed. There's a point when you have a ship out in the ocean where the captain looks and goes, get the lifeboats in the water, abandon ship. We cannot save this ship. There is no more time left. Time is of the essence. The, 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 the problem is that type of imagery is used all the time and people think that way and if a ship is in that position, it's a matter of hours, maybe minutes. Well, economies don't go down like a Titanic in hours or minutes. They appear to. But all of the fundamentals that create the collapse are stretched out over decades. And I think that we're entering a final cycle of what this thing can, can, can do. Could there be one more big reset? Possibly. But I think, I think that one of the, the, the things that, that they really want to do one more time is start the band up, but it's not a very long playing of the band. And what they need is a deflationary scare. They need monetary creation, lending, and debt to collapse down to where we don't have inflation, we have deflation, where people panic and will be okay with another round of quote-unquote quantitative easing, but a round that will make what happened before look like a joke. And I think it will be international. 
It won't just be all the banks doing it, but it'll be the federal government, our, our, our Federal Reserve, I'm sorry, pumping money into nations all over the world, worse than the $16 trillion they did already. Do you know that your Federal Reserve loaned out over $16 trillion of your money and didn't want to tell you where it went? If it wasn't for Bernie Sanders, who's not my best friend or anything, but if it wasn't for Bernie Sanders and people like Ron Paul, we wouldn't even know about it. I'll show you, I'll show you, put another great video for you guys to look up today. If you haven't seen it, it's called The $100 Million Penny and go watch that. But this is, this is the place that we're at. And I noticed something yesterday on the U.S. National Debt Clock when I was talking about it to you that I didn't, I saved it for today. Because everybody looks at that thing and you talk about all the numbers that keep going up. U.S. National Debt, 15.8 trillion, running away right now. We just spent a million dollars while I pulled it up on the screen. A million dollars. There's another million dollars gone. Right? I'm going to wait for it. And, well, there you go. Okay, so we spent two million dollars since I pulled this thing up. <laughs> and we see the numbers going up, 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 up. Federal tax revenue goes up because they're continuously taking more out of us. Income tax up, payroll tax up, state revenue, well, That goes up because even though we've got all these hard times, they keep extorting more and more money out of people. That's what I've said to you. It doesn't matter how bad the economy gets, they're going to make somebody pay because they are, they are on the hook for this stuff. They got to pay to keep this thing running long enough. If we look at the total U.S. interest, it's just running away, running away. But if we go down to the column that says total personal debt, which is how much you and I owe, It's about $15 trillion. dollars, And while I've, I'm talking to you right now, it just fell by $100,000. And it's continuing to count down. Yes, total personal debt is in decline. Mortgage debt is in decline. Here's the mortgage debt. There goes hundred grand just kicked off. $100,000 just kicked off. And a house, an entire you know moderate house, the debt's gone. Student loan debt. Student loan debt, out of all the debt, is the only debt still going up. It's the only debt. It's going up. I'm watching it right now. It just And it's going up slowly, but it's going up. It went up about $1,000 since I started talking about it. And it just continuously goes up, 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 up. And it is sitting at $817 billion and rising. Credit card debt is in decline. I'll give you a timeline. From when I said decline, it just dropped by a thousand bucks. And it's continuing to drop by a thousand bucks in that frequency over and over. You go look this up. I'm not making this up. All the big debt indicators, except student loan debt, are going down. There's two reasons. One, yes, Americans are paying off their debt because they've had to and they've had no choice and they have to do things to protect themselves. But the real decline in the debt is because people are defaulting. And it's why the student loan debt is going up and all the other forms of debt are going down because you can't default on student loan debt. They won't let you. The debt will keep rising as long as students keep borrowing money because anybody that owes money, unless they pay it off faster than it's accruing, will be on the hook for it until they die. Should they be around long enough that Social Security is still available, they will literally garnish your Social Security to pay your student loan debt. There is no way out of student loan debt, and hence it's the only one going up. So what I'm also looking at, there's some other numbers going down. The Federal Reserve Monetary Base, 
how much money the Federal Reserve is creating. The M2 money supply, in decline. Treasury securities, in decline. Currency and credit derivatives, in decline. These are indicators of currency contraction. Now, if the debt was going down at the national level, commensurate with this. If the budget was being reined in, these indicators could be good indicators because even though the monetary uh, volume is contracting, that would mean the dollar would get stronger, we'd have a stronger currency, and even though there'd be less money, it would buy more and it would all be okay. What you have are these two things deltaing away from each other. As the monetary creation, which is all... and re Why would the creation go down? Because the creation comes from debt. Primarily mortgage debt, which is dropping like a rock from people paying off their mortgage, from people buying less expensive homes, and from people simply throwing the keys at the bank and walking away. And from toxic assets being just dropped from the books eventually or dumped onto the Fed. Fed takes your money, gives it to the bank, and they dump the toxic asset. That's a big part of quantitative easing. It's not just printing money, it's the Federal Reserve taking your money and buying mortgages that will never be repaid and saying they're holding them on your behalf. Very, very nice of them, isn't it? This, this, is, this is this decoupling you're seeing right now. And when those numbers continue to do that for long enough, you end up with less spendable money in the world but greater debt. And then there's a panic. And then the people will beg. The people that have been saying no more quantitative easing will say, you got to do it now. Look, we're in a deflationary spiral. It, 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 we, we, we have to do it. it, it and what, what, what they won't say, do quantitative easing. They won't say print money. They'll say we have to free up lending. And that's when they'll, they'll turn it on. And that's when they'll heat the economy again. And as the economy begins to heat, the spending begins to increase. And then, that's like the guy was talking about on the interview. We've had the gas on for a very long time. And when the spark hits the gas, and it's been running for a very long time, boom. And is it the final boom? I don't know. I'm not one of those people that try to tell you that. But what I can tell you is it ain't going to be good. And when you couple it with all the other things that I've told you today, Like over a hundred cities alone, just 100 U.S. cities owing two trillion dollars, the government being on the hook for five trillion in interest alone for the next 10 years, the government borrowing more money and racking up the debt higher in 2012 than the government was able to do from Washington through Reagan. As you start to put these things together, the central banks understanding where they're at being able to get the money for next to nothing from the Fed and from next, next to nothing, I mean, quarter of a point, and being able to create money at will, taking the monetary creation, converting it to gold, and then dumping the dollars into the main market, which is another way to try to expand the currency, but yet it's collapsing because there's not enough lending. Because if money is created by debt. What have I always told you? And you've, I know you found it very hard to believe. But as debts are paid off or debts are defaulted on, money implodes into nothingness. If, if it's created by debt, the dissolution of debt destroys the money. And I know it doesn't seem to make sense, but if you go to the U.S. debt clock right now, you'll see it happening. You'll be able to watch it happening. You'll be able to watch the monetary supply and the debt load of the, of the people, the private debt, in decline. 
Well, the top end debt of the nation continues to rise. And that should tell you everything that you need to know. So I know this isn't let's go set fireworks off and have a really great 4th of July and say thanks to the troops, and many people do that and don't have any idea what that even means. That's not what we're doing today. We're talking about some dark and somber stuff. So what do we do about this? Same thing I tell you all the time, guys. But a little bit more today. But a little bit more urgency. One, I think you've got to position yourself into silver and or gold. And I think I still still believe silver is a safer play. I believe it's a less risky play, and I believe that it has more upside potential. If this thing really comes apart, initially cash will be king. So you need some cash on hand. But as the cash becomes worthless, gold will be used to rescue the giant corporations and the giant banks that did this and strip the, the nation of its wealth. And when that happens, silver will be the common man's currency, possibly copper. I'm not sure on copper. It's so cheap, yeah, you can throw a little bit of it here and there. That's part of why we do TSP copper. It's an easy way, but don't rely on your copper, man. You've got to have silver. I think probably the easiest thing to buy right now is small quantities, but a significant enough quantity to make it worth doing are rolls of pre-65 silver dimes. So 1964 and back silver dimes, Roosevelt dimes, Mercury's, I don't care. You can buy them at Atmex at not that big of a premium. You can get them on eBay. I just bought two rolls, I think, for $120 a roll. You know, I mean, it's it's easy, it's simple, and it's small denomination. So if you do go into a barter scenario, you have small fractionalized forms of silver to work with. Silver eagles are great. They're going to be accepted anywhere and everywhere. And they do come with some certain tax advantages. So there's got to be some positioning there. Uh, you have to. And it's, it's more than like five ounces. And if you're just getting started out and that's all you can afford for now, and you know, and it's an ounce a month, whatever, do something. But if you really have a lot of money somewhere, like a lot of cash saved up, and you can convert some portion of it to silver, a few thousand dollars, I would make that recommendation. And I would understand that there could be cycles in between this where that silver price could contract. And if it does, all I'm doing is buying more when it does. I mean, I, I, this is a long-term play that I'm recommending here, and hopefully very long. I, I just don't know how long. You say, well, ho why hopefully long-term? The longer it takes for that silver to double or triple its value, the longer you have to save your ass beyond having some money put away because just having silver or gold or money or anything it alone is not going to be enough. Two, we've got to get serious about food storage. Like I've said, I believe that if the average family gets them to themselves to 90 days of food storage, there will be some functioning form of economy. Something will be there. And you will be able to stretch that 90 days as a 25% supplement through to a year. But I think that's a minimum. That's a minimum of what we need to be striving for is 25, uh, or I'm sorry, three months of food storage, 25% of a year. So that in a collapse scenario where we have to use 25% less, we can keep ourselves healthy and strong and able to deal with the situation, and we can think rationally. So that's a minimum. I think that every person out there should start working on some skills, some level of mechanic, carpentry, and some basic tools and things like that. When these things fall apart, you won't be able to just pick up a phone and call a guy, and a guy will show up in two hours and fix your air conditioner for you. Right? Even if your air conditioner is running. And I want you to understand that these kinds of collapses can look really, really, really bad. Like, like fireball bad in some areas. And in other areas, they can just look like the Great Depression that you know from black and white movies. 
And those two things can go, go, go on at the same time. And you've got to be prepared that you could have to deal with either one of those. So you have to be prepared to have some level of economy remain. I think that you have to be able to defend yourself. Those of you who have spouses that are like, I don't want a gun in the house, they need to get their head, frankly, out of their freaking ass. Because somebody who doesn't have that problem can and likely will use their gun to take what you have if you can't defend yourself. There are scum in this society. I've said it before, about 10% of human beings are psychopathic scum, and they're only held in check by the level of enforcement of law. And they still do massive damage every day. The other thing you have to understand, there are millions and millions and millions of Americans on antipsychotic drugs. And if you get an economic re recession, a huge one, a big one like we're talking about today, a day of reckoning for all of this, this, this idiocy over the past five decades, when that day comes, a lot of those people are going to go without their medication. And they are going to go flipping nuts. On top of that, the gangs will go flipping nuts. You, Every officer you take off the street, each one officer probably results in 10 crimes over the next, next six months, at least. Take a thousand officers off, start doing the math. And some of these big states, big cities, they'll be pulling back 100, 200, 300, 400 officers. And the ones that are out there are going to be more stressed out, more hurting themselves, and more subject to being manipulated and bribed. And more likely to just, maybe not even straight bribery, but just, you know, these guys over here cause trouble, but it ain't that bad, so we're just not really going to focus on them because we can't focus on everybody. These guys are terrorizing people and all, but they're not burning the town down, so we'll let them go for it because we just can't do it all. We really got to work on the people over here to trying to start fires and burn the whole building down. Right? That's the, you know, not that cut and dry, but that's the kind of hard decisions that get made. You have to ration enforcement. If you have less officers than you have crime, you have to choose to selectively enforce in certain areas of higher crime. And that means that the common criminal is able to get away with more. So you've got to have a means of defense. You absolutely have to. Another thing I think you really need to look at, if you have a dream of owning a piece of property outside of the cities, even just an hour outside of the city. Even, I mean, at that range, it might suck, but you can buy a cheap, good gas mileage car. You can keep driving to work as long as you have a job. This is the time to act. These stupid, cheap interest rates cannot last forever. They can't. They'll hold them down as long as they can to try to get this heating going. But when it starts to heat up and the money starts to erode, they'll have to start chucking up the interest rate just to get the investment dollars in. The Fed doesn't set the rate. The market sets the rate. The only reason interest rates are so cheap right now is people are so shitless scared of every other currency that they're willing to hold dollars in the form of our treasuries for next to nothing, just for the privilege of holding dollars. That's where we're at. And that can't go on forever. And what's going to happen... At some point, as these banks are moving into hard assets and waiting for the day of reckoning, this lending cycle, even more so, like they think, people act like it's hard to get a loan right now. It's harder to get a loan right now. But if you qualify, it's actually easy and cheap to get a loan right now. It's those cheap and easy loans that'll seize up eventually. And there could come a time where it's too late to get out because when they know the jig is up, They're going to stop lending money on property they're not going to want after a collapse because they know they'll be able to pick it up any way and every way that they want it after the collapse because they're sitting on a bunch of gold now. 
And if I'm looking at the pattern, I'm saying this is still a couple of years here. But the, 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 the lending could start to tighten long before, again, this is that long event horizon heading for the hole. Again, this is not a collapse that's coming. This is a collapse that you've been living in for years. You've had periods that look good and periods that look bad. But the entire time, your nation's debt has risen, your freedom has fallen. Those two things have happened with astonishing you know, inverse relationship. The, the debt has increased almost directly proportioned to the number of laws that prevent you from living your life the way that you want to. They've taken over the food industry. They've taken over the power industry. They've taken over everything. Now they've taken, care of, taken over the healthcare industry. They won't be satisfied till they have complete control and you have nothing left. And that is a rape and pillage operation. And that's what's going on here. So you have to be, if you want out, now is the time for action. That doesn't mean you go do something stupid and start freaking out. You know, like go to a realtor and call a guy up and make an offer of property unseen. Don't do stuff like that. But I'm telling you, this is what we're doing. Even though I got out, when I look at it now, I go, you know what? I really want more of certain things. I want a different piece of property, and I was going to wait till next year. And now we're looking, and when we and we got approved, and when we find it, it's ours. We'll buy it. Because I want to act while the acting is, is, is profitable. And I want productive land that will provide for myself and my family. I want to be able to serve the community that I'm in so that that community will value me. Because when your community values you, your community protects you. When your community doesn't give a damn about you, they don't care if somebody comes in and harms you. So you've got to build community. This is so important. This lone wolf crap, I keep hearing from people, I'll be fine, I've got my AR, and I've got that. I've got a cabin in the woods, and you don't know, I'm a badass, I've been to training, I did this. You are going to end up freaking dead, or you're going to become a predator, and eventually, when society does put itself back together, and it will, you're going to answer for the way you acted. When I had Selko on, do you remember what he said? I think this got missed by a lot of people. He said there were people that after everything was done and over with, had to leave. Because once order was restored, the people around them that they victimized would have killed them. Once the order was restored, the predator becomes the prey. And it doesn't work to be the predator. You have to be the community. You have to be the protector of your community. If you want to come out of the other side of it, better off than you went into the front side of it. If you want to be part of the reconstruction of destruction, you have to be part of what holds it together. If you are a predator or a loner, even if you just go hermit and manage to pull it off, no one will have you because where were you when the city was burning? People hold revenge in their hearts. And the majority of people in this country are not just not prepared emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically for what's about to occur. If they believed every word coming out of my mouth today, the illusion of what it will look like and how hard it will be and how painful it will be is only one-tenth of one percent of what suffering they're actually going to have to endure, especially if they're totally unprepared. And when people get through that, a lot of times it's like going through a crucible. They come out stronger. It recharges them with basic humanity. And it makes them understand what's actually valuable. And good can come from misery in the end of these things. 
But those people that come out the other side of that, toughened, hardened, purified, they recognize the people that were scum during the occurrence, and those people have a big problem. Because the guy that you could victimize five years ago when a crisis like that begins has turned into a hardened, toughened son of a bitch. And that's what awaits the lone wolves. They may get away with a lot of their predatory nature, but they won't get away for very long. The same thing awaits the gangs. They will not get away with it for very long. So community is key. Going it alone will not work. Above all, being aware is the most important component here. If you're not aware of this stuff, you might wonder, why do I go this deep and dark sometimes? Why am I just blunt about it? Because some of you guys, the prepping's kind of cool, it's kind of like a hobby, whatever, and at least you're doing something, and I'm not putting you down, but when, when you hear me say something like it's absolutely inevitable that we're going to deal with an economic collapse at some point, you think, nah, not really. Not really. The numbers are so clear. The track record is so clear. The history is so clear. The current indicators and signs are so clear. Where, where is these, are these hundred large United States municipalities going to get two trillion dollars from? Somebody tell me that. How much money does the state of California owe? Where is it going to get its money? What happens when they close another couple prisons out there in California, guys? Right? What, what, what is California going to do about this huge surging population of illegal immigrants that are on government dole? That when austerity gets kicked in, and sooner or later it will, are going to be the first to go and the most upset about it. Because I'll tell you what, the American citizen has lost a lot of control of its government, but it does still impact some political control, and the politicians do still enact the control over the people and the distribution of the wealth that they would redistribute. And the American citizen being told that we have to go through cutting of benefits for like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, welfare, all of that stuff, we have to cut that, will not stand by. They won't let it happen that you're going to continue to pay illegals that money while you cut theirs. It won't, it cannot be sold to the people. It will result in bloodshed in the streets if they try to do that. Not from me and you, from the people that are receiving the money. They'll be like, no way. And the people that have older parents and stuff like that, they're going to get their social security cut and you're still going to pay a person that's not even supposed to be in this country? Why do you think they're trying to get the DREAM Act done? They're trying to legalize all these people so they can avoid the conflict. And it's probably not going to happen. All of these things are just going, hello, hello, we're going to screw this up. We're, we're, I'm here, I'm dead. I, your, your city owes me and, and I'm going to ruin your city. No, you're not getting your retirement even though you worked here for 30 years. And then this is the feeble-minded mentality of people because I'm going to get it today. But I worked hard for it. I deserve it. I'm not saying you didn't work hard for it. I'm not saying you didn't, you don't deserve it because it was promised to you in a contract. I'm telling you when the money's not there, you're not getting it. And this is the thing. I tried to explain this yesterday. Everybody wants to talk about, well, I feel and we should. Feel and should mean nothing. Reality eventually hits. All of these Ponzi scheme economic scams always fall apart the same way. It's happened in country after country, in century after century, and it always goes the same way. A belief by people in power that they can create a system that's so good that everybody can have everything, even if they do nothing. And then a, an understanding of that feeble-mindedness 
by the people with the real power to control the money that say, okay, we'll run the casino for you. But remember what a casino is. It's a place where the house never loses. Do you know in a casino, they flat out know, based on how much money is coming in, how much money they'll make today, they have a fixed payout. All the games are rigged, especially the games of chance, right? Not poker and blackjack. At least those are honest trades, right, in the words of Doc Holliday. But when we look at something like uh, slot machines in a casino, that's where most of the money comes from, the slot machines and stuff like that. Those slot machines are set to pay out a specific percentage. So the house knows exactly how much it's keeping. And that's your economy. The house knows exactly what it's taking out. And it's just funding your idiocy. It's just funding your stupidity. It's funding the stupidity of the politician. It's funding the stupidity of the person that's glued to their TV screen wondering what the Kardashians will do next. It's funding all of it. And it's just taking its piece and taking its piece and taking its piece. And when the day comes that that game can't be played anymore and the bill comes due, the guys that did this, that funded this, are going to be climbing out the window of the men's room and leaving you holding a check. And you can't pay it, and I can't pay it. And somebody today is going to say, why doesn't the United States simply default on its debt and hit the reset button? Because it would be an act of war. You can default on your debt when you default on your debt because you can't pay it. That puts you into a position where all the other countries are screwed and there's nothing they can do. If you willfully default on your debt, specifically to your allies, it's an act of war. And if we look at the people that hold our debt, one of the biggest holders of debt isn't even actually an ally. It's the Chinese. I don't want a war with China. Is it you? Oh, they wouldn't do that. Oh, really? I've seen people knifed over five bucks. You start, you start screwing somebody out of a trillion dollars. So the Chinese are encouraging us. The British, are, everybody holding our debt, is encouraging us to keep the casino running while they use the time so that when we do default, they're as well prepared as they can be. We, all of the world's governments know this is inevitable. Every single one does. That's why China's created a silver banking system for their people. In, in communist China... A citizen in China can choose to do business today in silver or Chinese currency. They have a choice. There's no obstacles to it anymore. Think about that. How free are you when the Chinese have encouraged their people to behave this way and your government literally forbids you to behave this way? They make it almost impossible to bank in silver. There's some people working on ways around it. Hopefully they'll pull it off. More, to that, more of that to come down the road. But China is on board with that. So China is planning to deal with this and maintain what they have. The U.S. is ignoring it at its own peril because the people with the puppet strings at the top are going to simply walk away when it finally blows up. They're going to let us all try to kill ourselves. And when very little is left... They'll come in like we're once again a third world nation and buy it all back and start doing the whole game all over again. And they'll come in and they'll say, you're right, it didn't work. We should have went with a commodity currency. Let's bring back the gold standard or the gold and silver standard. And everybody that thinks that's great doesn't understand. It doesn't matter what monetary standard you're on. If it's not, 
in the hands of the people. If it's in the hand of the private bankers, it could be backed by moon rocks, and they'll still screw you with it. And that's the harsh reality that you're dealing with right now. And that's the economic collapse that you're watching occur around you. And I know it's hard to walk down a well-run and well-ordered street in a city and see it as an economic collapse, but every time one of those is disintegrated down into mob rule, how long does it take for that to happen? And then go examine everything that's ever created a true breakdown and see how long the events leading up to it really were. Start tracing the chain of events backwards. You'll find that these things that happen over, overnight always happen over months, years, minimum weeks. Most of them happen over years. And that's where we're at today. And it's time for you to protect your family. It's time for you to see this is real. And this isn't prepare for an economic collapse. Because remember what I've told you, we don't prepare for events. We prepare to deal with our systems of support. This is just one way that that can happen. There's other things that could happen in between that would precipitate this. Here's why, though, it makes sense to be aware and prepare for the consequences of an economic collapse. Every other major global calamity would create an economic collapse. Pandemic would create an economic collapse. War would create an economic collapse. Right? War is only good for business in the minds of America because we've been able to fight wars on the soil of others. War is not good for a nation when it's being fought on its own soil. We've been sold on the war machine. War is good for the economy. No. War is good for the economy of the victor. As you're thinking about the history of this nation today, you know I'm not a basher of my nation, especially the, the, what, that which my nation is supposed to be. But when we're thanking the troops and everything, remember, those guys do what they do because they believe in it. But many of the people in charge of them, they know everything I've told you today. And they know exactly what they're doing. And they're using you, and they're using me, they're using the soldiers, they're using everybody. And you know what you do with something when you use it up? You throw it away. And that's what they do to our veterans, isn't it? Think about it. They use them up, and they throw them away. The ones that come home too damaged, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, unless some private charity steps in, you know where they end up most of the time? in and out of the VA hospital, addicted to drugs and alcohol, and living on the streets. They use them up. They use them for their ends. They, they, they get their means out of them. They sell you on patriotism by saying to go out and thank them, and then they end up in the streets. It happens a lot, more than anybody wants to admit. I still think you should thank people for their service, but you should understand that sometimes the service is noble, but the commander isn't. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. That beach are running with an M1 in my hand. Before I got to cover, I was face down in the sand. Well, 
I'm proud to die on D-Day, and I'd do it all again. The time has shown me death and war, breach politics and sin. What are you done with my country? What are you done with the white picket fence? I gave my life so you could be free. And this is how, yeah, this is how you repay me. Hey.